Good morning, church, and Happy New Year. Merry Christmas. It's good to see you all back here as we continue through our series on Jonah. I'd like to um, share with you one of my favorite pastimes, and it's football. I'm not very athletic, but I love to kind of like watch football. And one of my favorite teams, at least right now, are the Miami Dolphins. And I like the Dolphins, not because of any of their players. I don't know if they're really even that good, but I like their coach, Mike McDaniels. And in week 14, Miami played the Buffalo Bills. Any Dolphins fans in here, by the way? There's one way in the back. And in week 14, this was a really not a big game for Miami, but it was a big game for Buffalo. Because Miami was a shoe-in to win this game. They were guaranteed to win this game. As a matter of fact, folks had them ahead to beat Buffalo by at least a touchdown. And then something happened. Miami got their butts whooped by Buffalo. Miami was on a winning streak. I believe they had six games behind them winning. They were, like, just running through teams left and right. Their coach was popular. He was charismatic. But then all of a sudden, they got humbled real quick by a lesser team at home. And so in the locker room, after they kind of sit back and debrief the the game, Coach McDaniel said something really wise for a young coach. He said, we should be grateful that we've had this opportunity. And they're looking around like, why should we be glad that we got our butts kicked by a lesser team? And he began to go on and explain to them the opportunity that adversary, adversity brings. You see, Coach McDaniel understood adversity because he is a recovering alcoholic and he's public about that. And he's spent time in rehab and he's overcome this thing, but he understands the value in adversity from a worldly perspective. Well, friends, we too, as God's people, can gain a lot from adversity. As we continue through our series in Jonah, we'll see that Jonah finds himself in a bit of adversity. But oh, thank God that he allowed this adversity to take place in Jonah's life. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Jonah chapter 1. You can go ahead and stand with me as we read the Word of God. We're going to be looking at verse 17 of chapter 1 all the way through verse 10 of chapter 2, that's Jonah 1.17, all the way through 2.10. And the word of God says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly... Of Shoal, I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. The roots Of the mountains, or at the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you and to your holy temple. 
Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Please join me in prayer. Father God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we don't have to make excuse for it or exception to it. We thank you that you've given us this church. We're glad to be here, Lord, as we look back on the days that this year has brought. Some of us look back with um, angst and even trepidation, Father God. But may we now look to you in your word for hope, peace, and comfort. I pray that you will lead and guide our time, Lord. Open hearts that they may be receptive, Father God. And we just ask, Lord, that if there's anyone in this room who is not at some point placed their faith in you, Lord, that today would be the day. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, and please be seated. The title for today's sermon is Tremendous Mercy. And if there's one thought that I would leave you with today is that God desires through his love to have mercy on us. God desires through his love to have mercy on us. I love the the text that I've been given today to, to preach because it speaks so much to me and I hope it'll encourage you as well. As I look through the text, verses one, excuse me, verses 17 of chapter 1 all the way through verse 10 of chapter 2, I begin to understand the framing and how it was organized. Verse 1, 17, excuse me, verse 17 in chapter 1 is kind of like the beginning of the frame. Verse 10 of chapter 2 is the end of the frame. And so you see here there's a sandwich of a concept. Verses 1 through 9 of chapter 2 are kind of like the meat and the focus of Jonah, and it's framed by these outside buns, if you will. And so I'd like to begin to look at the text in that structure. We have a thought, we have a song, a beautiful song, and then we have another thought to close us out. As we begin with our first main point that God authors adversity, I would like to submit to you verse 17 of chapter 1, which reads, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Right off the jump, we see here who is in control of this story. The Lord appointed this great fish. We see that God here is in the directing business. He has directed this great fish. He is still in control of the entire story. Jonah has sought to control his own destiny. If we look back in chapter 1, Jonah had a call from God. He did something different. God said, go this way. He did something different. And Jonah finds himself trying to knuckle up with God, telling God what he's going to do with his life, and God is still in control. The word for appointed here can be used, um, can be replaced with ordained or provided, or arranged, or prepared. The point is that God directed this action. See, God in full control as Jonah seeks to control his life, his destiny, and his every move. 
We can look back on chapter 1 and see that God's been in control of this story from the beginning. Jonah fled to the ship. What did God do? He hurled a storm at the ship. We see Jonah with the sailors, and the the sailors were afraid. And then Jonah submitted to them. He let them know that I'm the reason. And so God brought peace. The sailors threw Jonah into the sea, and then the Lord brought peace to the sea. And now we see Jonah in the sea and God again appointing a fish to come and get him out of the sea. There's this dance. Jonah goes this way. God goes that way. Jonah continues to rebel. God continues to show no, he is in control. The text gives us this idea that God is there every step of the way. And even as Jonah continues to rebel, God has these barriers in his life. And to prove this point, God calls up one of his creatures and instantly, without delay, without hesitation, without going to a store or something first, or going to a, uh, maybe stopping in at the fish depot or the, I call it the home depot because that's one of my favorite places. The fish goes directly to Jonah and he responds in obedience. There's no sense of hesitation or delay. The fish acts on command. We compare this to Jonah's flightiness. Remember, Jonah's name is Dove. Dove gives us the idea of just one who flies in different directions with no true aim. Yet the fish goes directly to Jonah. God gives a command. The fish responds. God is clearly in control. He sent this great fish to swallow up Jonah. For some reason, the whale seems to be the star of this story. On all the children's books that my kids have and that they've read, we see Jonah and the whale. There's Jonah, this big smiling man on the beach, and he's surrounded by like sea, uh, star, starfish or whatever and little baby fish. And then you see the whale just kind of smiling behind him. The whale gets way more attention than what it should get in this text. And many of you, as you thought of Jonah, you thought immediately of the whale. I think we should give about as much attention to the whale as the word of God gives to the well. So let's just see what God says about the fish. The word tells us that the fish was big, and not just any big. This idea of big or gadol in Hebrew has been carried throughout at least chapter 1. We see the wickedness of Nineveh was big. The size of Nineveh was big. The storm was big. The sailor's fear was big. And the admiration that the sailors had for God once he calmed the sea was also big. So it makes sense to us that the fish would also be big. Most would think that God is from Texas because in Texas we like things big. Amen. God was in control. We see that the fish, the second attribute here is that it was appointed by God, just like the storm. And lastly, we see that it obeyed simultaneously. We don't see any biology of the fish. We don't know if it was a well a shark, an octopus, a squid, it doesn't really matter, friends. All that matters is that the fish was a miraculous creature that God conjured up in his divine sovereignty to do this one purpose, to swallow up Jonah. That's all that matters. And what matters most is that it obeyed. We see here in the second half of verse 17, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish For three days and three nights. What exactly is the significance of three days and three nights? Well, before we get into that, my sister Marianne, 
Let's think through and consider what exactly God was trying to do. What was God's goal? And for a second, if we zoom out away from Jonah and we look at the larger context and even the symbology that we see with Israel, we maybe get a better understanding of what exactly three days and three nights were about. Jonah, and even more explicitly, Israel had rebelled against God. Rebellion in its core is defiance. It is a counteraction to what one was commanded or expected to do. Again, God says, go here. What does Jonah do? Does the exact opposite. Literally, the text shows us that he could go no further from obeying God. He ran to Tarshish. God told Israel to flee from idolatry. Well, their wickedness mirrored Jonah's rebellion. In Leviticus chapter 18, verses 28 or 24 through 28, we see early in the law, as God is giving them the foundational principles of their faith and their relationship with Him, He says, Do not make for yourself unclean, or do not make yourself unclean by any of these things. For by all these, the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. And the land became unclean so that I punished its inequity. And the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you, my people, God's people, shall keep my statues and my rules and do none of these abominations, either the native or the, strong, the stranger who sojourns among you, for the people of the land who were before you did all these abominations so that the land became uncleaned, lest the land vomit you out when it makes you unclean as it vomited out the nations that were before you. Hence, or uh, note the use of vomit three times in the Levitical text. Uh, We'll get to that later. God warned them to honor him and his commandments. This was foundational. And they sought to follow the practice of the nations around them. Church, we should take note of this warning. Jonah and the northern kingdom of Israel is in this dance with the Lord where they refuse to comply. So he creates for them, this is the purpose of the three days, an environment by which they can be conditioned to comply. An environment by which they could be conditioned to comply. For Jonah, it was the well. For the Hebrew people, it was exile. If we understand the mirror symbology between which we'll get to later, but the point of the three days was adversity. They needed adversity. Time and time again in the story of God, we see him creating conditions out of his mercy for us that will facilitate repentance. God is in control, friends, not Jonah. The illustration that comes to mind as I thought through this concept is that of a conductor and a symphony. You see, in a symphony, you have different components. Each individual represents the instrument. Each instrument represents a person perhaps playing a specific role. Some play loud and vibrant melodies while others contribute softer, harmonious tones, but everyone has a purpose in this symphony of God's life. Then you have the sheet music. 
Sheet music can be compared to God's divine plan that he's composed for each and every person to play. It contains highs and lows and moments of joy and challenge, all intricately woven together into this beautiful masterpiece that God creates. But then again, what would you have sheet music for without a conductor? The conductor is God himself, and he stands at the podium directing the orchestra with perfect timing and precision. His baton guides each selection and each section, bringing out the best of every instrument. Even in moments of dissonance and silence, the conductor remains in control, knowing how each part contributes overall to the composition. The unforeseen circumstances in our lives, friends, are not a surprise to God. They are orchestrated and appointed and ordained and prescribed by God. Just as the conductor commands the orchestra, so does God operate behind the scenes of our lives through adversity. So what is the cause of adversity? Why me? I hear that all the time. Why me? Why me? Why do I have to go through this? My neighbor's got, you know, nice things and their family's got it all together. Facebook is one of the most poison places. I don't know if I can make that official statement from up here that you will find. Because we get online and what do we see? Everybody's best moments, right? And so we start thinking, man, I wish I had... My first wife still, or I wish I had my first truck still. I don't know. I'm thinking of a country song right now. (laughs) Whatever the situation is, we reflect on everyone else's happiness kind of as, well, why me? Why me? What is the cause of adversity in your life? Or better yet, who is the cause of adversity in your life? Who do we typically look to when things come up? Who do we blame? Satan? Satan? Well, I think you're probably giving him a little bit too much credit. If we look at Job chapter 1, we understand that Satan does nothing without God allowing it to happen, especially to his people. Is it the president? Well, Daniel chapter 2 tells us real quick that God ordains kings. He sets them up and he takes them down. Are you looking to yourself for the cause of your adversity? That may be closer to reality because some of us have done some messed up stuff And probably brought along some adversity. But friends, even in that, God is still sovereign. We must consider what is God's role in our life. And what is the purpose of these adversities? Jonah had to die to himself. Friends, we too must do the same. There's a practical application for a few different groups in this room. Some of us at times, and I did this um, for different loved ones in my life, seek to kind of pad adversity in others' lives. We see things going tough for relatives or friends, and we try to make it a little easier for them, almost kind of undermining what God's doing in their lives. Some of us will see the adversity in our lives just as Jonah did and continue to buck the system. Friends, when we see Jonah in the first storm on the ship, he wasn't repenting to God. 
He's ready to die. Again, trying to control his life. Throw me into the sea. He was committing suicide, seeking to continue to go away from God's will for his life. The only proper response, friends, in a show of force from God Almighty is to buckle one's knees, fall to your face in complete submission to God. And this is what we see Jonah do as the story continues in chapter 2. In verses 1 through 9, we see a beautiful psalm. Some call it a song. It has all the components of a psalm of thanksgiving that we see in psalms. It's got an introduction. It's got a description of the past distress. It's got an appeal to God for help. It's got a reference to the rescue of God. And then it has a vow or promise or a testimonial. In verse 2, we see the introduction. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried to you, and you heard my voice. Verses 3 through 6, we see this description of the past distresses. He says, For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head and the roots at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. The symbology or the description here is that Jonah is at the gates of hell. He can go no lower. Remember the idea that we saw the downward spiral of Jonah's life in chapter one where Jonah went down to, um, to, the, to the port, and then he went down into the ship and down into the hull, and then eventually down into the sea. Where Jonah continues to go down, now he's at the gates of hell. He can go no lower. Friends, there are some of you who have been to this place, in this room, and you know the great opportunity that lies literally at the gates of hell. We see that Jonah can go no further. And he picks it up here in verse 7 as he appeals to God for help. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you and to your holy temple. The temple was understood as the place where God dwelled. Jonah sought to flee from God's presence, but we see him now looking back to the presence of God. God relentlessly pursued Jonah and brought him back into his presence. Twice in verses 7 and verse 4, we see this idea of the temple of God being brought back to Jonah's priority. Jonah, at least in word, was turning back to God. In verse 6, yet you brought me up. My life from the pit, O Lord, my God. And in verse 8 and 9, we see here his vow of testimony or praise. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope, the hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. This beautiful psalm, we see an example 
throughout the Psalms in Psalm 30, Psalm 32, Psalm 34, 107, 116 in your notes. The Psalm depicts a trial and a turn to God. A point of our lives where we must recognize our error, God's faithfulness, and then we must turn back to him. In 1978, a woman named Joni Erickson Tata wrote a book titled, A Step Further, Growing Closer to God Through Hurt and Hardship. She was a swimmer in her youth, and through a swimming accident, she became paralyzed. And as she explains how she reflects back on this, I mean, she was a quadriplegic. But here she is writing about that experience. She writes, I really don't mind the inconvenience of being paralyzed if my faithfulness to God while in this wheelchair will bring glory to him. When God brings suffering into your life as a Christian, be it mild or drastic, he is forcing you to decide on issues you've been avoiding. He is pressing you to ask yourself some questions. Am I going to continue to try to live in two worlds, obeying Christ and my own sinful desires? Am I going to refuse to worry? Am I going to be grateful in trials? Am I going to abandon my sins? In short, I'm going to be like Christ. He provides suffering, but the choice is yours to return. My first main point was that God authors adversity. And here in this second section of the text, we see that adversity brings humility. Scripture shows us this time and time again. I'm going to flow through a bunch of these examples. You have them in your notes for further reference. Paul on the road to Damascus after, being, after persecuting Christ's followers was stricken with blindness. Paul later repented in Acts 9. David was being punished for sin of adultery and murder even. And then after losing his firstborn son, which was born to him, his firstborn son born to Bathsheba, he later repented in chapter 12 of 2 Samuel. Jacob fought with God and his hip was replaced. Jacob was displaced. Jacob later relented and praised God in Genesis 32. Peter denied Christ three times. And in shame and agony... We see him in verse or chapter 26 of Matthew turn back to God. Job was angry with God, but God shut up his lips. And in Job 42, we see Job confess of his insufficiency. Friends, adversity that we experience in our life should put us on a path of submission. It should, because we can see that it is a tool of God to bring humility. To us, Romans chapter 8, verse 28, and we know that those who love God, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good. Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 4, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves those whom he loves. Hebrews chapter 12, my favorite, verse 11. 
For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but it later yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Friends, God's not looking to beat us down. I remember when I was a young supervisor, um, as an NCO, I had my first group of troops, and I didn't quite understand the concept of building people back up when you break them down. I just beat them down. And that's what I thought you're supposed to do as an NCO. That's what the NCOs before me did, and that's what I was taught to do. That's what happened to me. And my dad told me one day, friend, well, not friend, but son, if you don't know how to build people up, then, then all you're doing is breaking them down. Friends, God only breaks us down to build us back up. Many of us may have a question at this point. Well, you may say, well, I've had a hard life, and, or I've known someone that's had a hard life, and they were broken down, but they never got built back up. Maybe they never repented. Maybe they never turned back to God. Well, friends, all of us have a choice in adversity. And the choice is not God's choice. The choice is not my choice. Everyone has to make a choice to submit to God. And you can either choose to look at your adversity and think that, well, God hates me and that he's not a good God and that he spitefully wants to break me down out of his pleasure, or you can look at God and say he is a good God and that he loves me and that there's purpose in his plans for me, and then repent. Our role, church, is to share God's hope with those that we find in adversity. We have the opportunity, wherever God has put us, at our jobs, in our neighborhoods, you will, without a doubt, run into someone that's going through a time of adversity. Church, our job is to let them know the truth of God's word. Romans 8, verse 18 says, I consider, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed to us. Friends, our vision is sometimes short-sighted on earth. Yes, we will have adversity. Yes, we will have cancers and all types of manner of illnesses and just circumstances. But friends, this ain't it. There's a life after this earth. We may not make it to 2024, friends. The Lord may come back. That'll be the best New Year celebration we've ever seen. And glory be to God for it because, friends, this life will end as we know it. And then we will continue on into eternity where it matters. So let's not get so caught up over what happens here, but let's see God's intent for adversity. It is to bring humility. And humility, friends, begets mercy. Look with me in chapter 2, verse 10. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Again, we see the Lord is in control. He commanded the fish, and the fish spit Jonah out exactly where he needed to go, to put him back on his path that he should have been on from the beginning. Jonah's delivered. At this point, he's headed to Nineveh. God sent the fish to bring the adversity. Jonah reacts in humility. God responds in mercy. I wish this was the end of the story, friends, but it's not. Jonah is delivered through God's mercy. And the objective of God's wrath in Jonah's life was accomplished. His mercy is shown. 
last week, my boys were fighting over a toy, and the smallest one is a lot uh, more, what's the word? I have to think because my children are watching me right now. He's a lot more, um, uh, he's a lot tougher in some ways than my older son. He likes to fight and rough house, and, you know, he's a lot more aggressive. Maybe that's the word I'm looking for. And so the younger boy ends up taking a lot of the toys and stuff from the older boy. The older boy's twice his size. He just doesn't fight them, but the younger boy takes his toys all the time. And so last week I had to let the younger one know, hey, you need to go and sit in timeout because you took Bubba's toy, right? And he was mad, and he sat down. He's angry on the steps, and, you know, he's just sitting there fuming. And I told him he could be there for three minutes because three minutes is kind of the rule. We do a minute per year in our life. I don't know if y'all do that. So three minutes he sat in timeout, and he's fuming. At the end of that three minutes, I look over to him, and his countenance had changed a little bit. And he was ready to apologize to his brother for stealing this toy and for being mean. I didn't put him in timeout to try to break him down. I put him in timeout as a show of mercy because I wanted him to recognize what he was doing wrong. What is the objective of God's mercy towards Jonah? We can look at it in a couple different ways. Jonah rebelled and his task was to evangelize the lost and the wicked, the Gentiles of the Assyrian Empire. Again, we'll see later on in in this book, but these were wicked, wicked people. Just take a glance through 2 Kings and you'll see exactly how bad they were. But God directed them and used them to humble the Israeli people or the Hebrew people. Jonah rebelled, God pursued. God punished him, brought him back on course. Israel failed to honor God. God put them into the exile and they again repented. Mercy was shown to these people. Mercy is God's goal, friends. Humility is the means, but mercy, so that he can show us just how much he loves us, just how much he cares for us. It gives him glory to show mercy to us. It gives him glory for us to realize and to praise him and to tell others how wonderful and good He's been. Friends, we have all done wrong. Not a one of us ever completely obeyed instantaneously like the fish. We are due punishment. God is just. And he can't not deal with our sins. He cannot ignore the things that we've done wrong. As you reflect back on 2023, some of you look back, and I heard a brother in the hallway say, man, I'm sure glad it's behind me. And a lot of you probably have that sentiment. Some of you looking to next year thinking, man, I hope it ain't as bad as this year. I would ask you to take on the perspective that God asked us here in his word to know that he was not only in control of 2023, friends, but he is also in control of 2024 and however many years he shall give us after. He is in control. Matthew chapter 12, we see that God uses Jonah as a sign for the people. Jesus is trying to explain the sign of Jonah to folks as they're questioning him and going back and forth. And he told them that the only sign that they'll be given is the sign of Jonah in the tomb for three days or Jonah in the belly of the fish for three days. We see here 
this comparison between Jesus and Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of the fish, so was Jesus entombed for three days. The heart of the fish and the heart of the earth represent tombs. We see there's repentance at Jonah's preaching. We see also repentance at the teaching and preaching of Christ. Friends, you must make a decision how you want your adversity and how you want this year to end. Jonah's preaching was validated by miraculous deliverance. Jesus' preaching is validated by miraculous deliverance for us as well. And so I ask you, who are you and where are you right now? Can you say that you're on the side of the people who respond to the preaching and teaching of Jesus? Can you say that you are those who, like Jonah, are rebelling from God? Do you blame God for the adversity in your life? Good. You should. But do you also recognize that he seeks to bring humility and mercy in your life? Don't look to anyone else, friends, but today is the day that I would ask you to submit your worries to the Lord. As I begin in the moment of prayer to close out our time in the sermon, I would ask you to search your hearts, or better yet, ask the word of God or the spirit of God to search your hearts. Each of us sometimes carries these hidden bitter, kind of rejecting God's will in our lives. We, we harbor things like, well, I wasn't raised in this particular family, or maybe I didn't have a father growing up, or maybe I got passed over for a promotion, or I didn't get into this school, or whatever the thing is that you're harboring, friends, like, I would ask you to just give those over to God. Everything that happens in your life if you have placed your trust in Christ, is going to make you more like his image. It doesn't matter what. And if you've not placed your trust in Christ, then it is God's mercy trying to get you back on board, trying to give you a clue, friend, that you too, like Jonah, will be at the gates of hell. But at that point, there is no one to advocate for you lest you've placed your faith in Jesus. So if you've not done so today, I would ask you to consider, try God. You've tried everything else. You've gone every other place. Try God. It ain't going to be easy. You might wind up with a broken arm or a divorce. Friends, God's life is not easy. But when we look in God's word, we see that adversity time after time after time brings us closer to him. It's not a picture-perfect life. You're not going to be shielded from all life's woes, but you will have the strength to get through it. And when it matters, friend, in eternity, you can look back and praise God with a full heart as Jonah did. Please join me in a time of prayer. Father God, we thank you for the obedience to all creation, to your will. Lord, there is nothing that is not under your control and under your sovereignty. And we thank you, Lord, that through adversity in our lives, you show us your goodness and your love. As we reflect back, Father God, on past adversity that we've experienced, 
may we submit those things to you. Lord, many of us from as far as we can remember have had a hard life. Lord, we submit that to you. We confess, Father God, that we don't have the strength to deal with what you've put before us. But Lord, we just want to give you glory with our lives. And so, Lord, we come before you laying down whatever the situation, the trial, the addiction, the frustration, the pain, Lord, whatever it may be. And we're hopeful, Lord, as we're reminded that there is nothing on this earth that we could ever suffer that is worthy to, com- be, to be compared with the glory that will be revealed to us in heaven. Lord, as we look to heaven, not to 2024, Lord, but as we look to heaven, may we be resolute now, Father God, to live more for you, to live intentionally, telling our neighbors this truth. In Jesus' name, amen.